0: What a great morning we're having, Uh, awesome time in worship, an amazing update from some global workers, and uh, I'm excited to be speaking from God's Word today. Uh, If you've been with us, we've been exploring the book of Genesis. Um, In particular, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the topic of our discussion. We've been going chapter by chapter. Through this, looking at the story of Genesis, this is a story presented to us—a story about God, a story about His people, a story about us. It explains our origins, it explains our identity, and it tells us our destiny. And uh, we've just been looking at all the, the way that all the themes of the Bible start to explode off the off the page as we read these first few chapters, and how amazing it is to see God at work in the world. Uh, this is our eighth week in the series. Um, and we've got three or four more, I can't remember, uh, to get to the end of chapter 11. Um, But if you've missed any Sundays, I I highly encourage you, go to our website, go to our podcast on iTunes, um, catch up, because... Uh, we design sermon series here in order for the whole thing to be heard. And that's up to you. That's your choice. You know, if you miss a Sunday and you don't want to catch up, that's your choice. But you'll get the most out of it if you catch up when you miss a Sunday. And we make that as accessible as possible to you. But the themes of Genesis, as they get introduced, they build on each other. So you're going to get the most out of it if you stick with us all the way through. Now, as we hit part eight, we're in Genesis chapter five and six today, taking a bit of a larger Uh, text of Scripture, but we're going to be hitting a point in the story that is tricky. It's going to be categorized at one point in the category of the Bible can be weird sometimes, okay? And if anybody of you are Bible readers for any length of time, you know that category that I'm talking about. And so I'll I'll get into that as we go. But we're starting in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. You can open up a device or your Bible to follow along. Genesis 5 1. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human here's a summary statement. It's recapping the fact that human beings, male and female, are co-equal image bearers of God. We are made in the image of God, which means we have dignity and we have value and we have worth. And being an image bearer also means that we are called to rule and steward creation as God's vice regents. He gave us uh, dominion over creation itself. And so he names us humans. The Hebrew word is Adam or Adam, but both humans are co-equal, blessed image bearers partnering together in the project of stewarding God's good creation. Verse 3, when Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him. In his very image, he named his son Seth. So Adam is made in God's image and Adam's children are in Adam's image, basically meaning the status of image bearer gets passed on to generation after generation, all the way to us. And this very uh, unique Judeo-Christian belief that all human beings are made in the image of God is the foundation for modern human rights, especially in the Western world, It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what country you're born in, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're powerful or powerless, male or female, healthy or sick. It doesn't matter if you're 5, 50, 100, or still in the womb. You have dignity and value made in the image of God. That's where we base our value and purpose and dignity in. So Adam and Eve are also, we're hearing, living out the blessing given to them in Genesis 1, which was to be fruitful and multiply. Here they are multiplying. They're having children. The population of the world is expanding through this family and growing as God told them to. So last week, if you were here, Pastor Nick talked to us about the first family, about the first siblings, and sibling rivalry is not something that's new in your family, but Cain and Abel had a conflict. Cain became jealous of Abel and murdered him. But now we learn about a third son in the family, a son named Seth. So remember that God promised, after sin entered into the garden, God promised Eve that her offspring would would be a savior her offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent that deceived her so that offspring that would be a savior was not Cain he became a murderer crushing the head of his brother not the serpent and so in doing so he became an offspring of the serpent the offspring to be a savior was not able he was victimized and murdered by his brother Cain he wasn't able to save anybody even himself And so, but Eve's offspring, her lineage continues now through Seth. So the hope of this coming savior is still there. Who will it be? How will God bring about the fulfillment of this promise? So, and now we get into one of the most fun and interesting types of literature in the Bible. We get into a genealogy. Are you ready? Don't worry. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to show you the pattern here. Verse 4, after the birth of Seth... Adam lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Adam lived uh, 930 years, and then he died. When Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. So if you've read the Bible, you've noticed that there are many places where you bump into one of these genealogies. There's a few of them in Genesis. Um, There's more throughout the Old Testament. Uh, You start Matthew's gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And sometimes if you come to them, you may wonder, why is this here? I don't understand. You're going to be tempted to skip the genealogy to get to one of the better parts. Totally understandable. But I want to talk about what's going on here because every time a genealogy is shared in the Bible, there's a point behind it. It's it's trying to get across a message or multiple messages to us. And so I want to look at this one and get the point of this genealogy. In chapters 5 and 6 of this genealogy, it mentions 10 men. It starts with Adam and ends with Noah. That's the Noah of flood and ark fame. We will get to Noah next week for Mother's Day. I'm not sure how we're going to connect those two themes, but I'll figure it out this week, okay? Uh, (laughs) The 10 men in this genealogy represent a succession of family patriarchs who had sons and daughters in their time, and then they died, leaving the next generation to have sons and daughters in their time, and then they died. Now it's helpful to note that when you read Hebrew genealogies, um, again they're they're not just a list of names and family, family lineage. They're trying to get across a point, so sometimes they actually intentionally shape them to get their point across. So that means you, we're not necessarily reading the um, the exact direct succession of family member after family member. Sometimes genealogies will. Uh, skip family members. So when it says the son of so-and-so, that can mean a direct son or uh, down the line further on. There's several examples of that. But back in the 17th century, uh, a bishop named James Usher assumed that this genealogy was a direct unbroken genealogy, so he counted backwards and guessed that Adam must have been created on October 23rd, 4004 B.C., Maybe, okay, maybe, but we can't be certain of that. That's not the point of this genealogy. We can't even really be certain that the extremely long ages listed in this genealogy are meant to be understood literally or if there's something else trying to be said about what's going on here based on ancient Near Eastern tradition and blah, 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 blah. It's a rabbit hole we don't have time to get into. But what is this genealogy trying to tell us in the story of Genesis. Well, if Genesis is about origins, identity, and destiny, it makes sense that there would be some mention of a family tree. Have you ever explored your family tree? Family trees can be very interesting. It's always a mix. You have certain family members you're proud to be related to, right? Branches of the family tree that produced healthy fruit for the family then there's other branches of the family tree that did not produce fruit. It produced nuts, right? We all have a few nuts in the family, and if you're not sure who the nuts are in your family, it's you, okay? (laughs) Everybody else in the family knows, but they all exist. So, but our family trees explain so much About us. In fact, if you've ever been to a counselor or a psychiatrist, which I always highly recommend for personal mental health or family health, they will always ask you about your family. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about some of the lineage and history and how you saw life modeled by the people who went before you. The patterns of your predecessors get ingrained in your own life and actions. Our mom is the keeper of our family tree, she's got it all mapped out in her head. I don't know how she does it. Once in a while, we're in church or we're out somewhere. And she says, Dave, do you see that person? They're the third cousin of my brother's rescue dog's former owner. I'm like, I'm not, not going to remember that. Anyways, but it was always handy if, you know, I was, if I was interested in a girl growing up. Mom, can you just make sure I'm not related to this girl somehow? You can never be too careful. But our family tree it tells us a little bit about where we came from. It explains so much about the way our lives are. It was a really important concept, especially to Hebrew people, as they trace back through their tribes and clans. But this genealogy isn't just about tracing family lines. It reminds us about a transition in the human experience. Humans were originally created by God to live forever in relationship with him. When Adam and Eve sinned, They were exiled from the Garden of Eden, which means they were cut off from eating from the tree of life, which means they were cut off from life itself. And so death entered the world. And so you get this family tree that makes the very explicit point. He had sons and daughters, and then he died. And then his son had sons and daughters. And then he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. died. Adam was told, because you have sinned, From dust you came, from dust you will return. Guess what? You are going to die too. One day your name will be added to this line. You lived, maybe you had some sons and daughters along the way, but then you died. I'm so thankful I came to church today. Pastor Dave gave such an encouraging message. We're all going to die, praise the Lord. We must confront ourselves with the reality of our own mortality. Maybe some of you are a little further on in the journey, and so it feels a little bit more real. Maybe some of, some of you are younger, and it feels so far off as to be completely unrealistic. But all of us must confront ourselves with the reality of our mortality. One day, if the Lord does not come back first, we will be added to the list of Genesis 5. Each breath we have is an act of God's grace, and we are never guaranteed one more day or even one more minute of breath in this world. And have you confronted the fact that the reason you're destined for death is that your life has been completely corrupted by sin? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We work for sin, and our paycheck is death, and payday always comes. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus, he pays the debt of sin and death on, by himself by dying on the cross. We sinned at the tree, and so Jesus pays our debt at the tree. So now death doesn't have mastery over us. Even if you die, one day you will raise to life in Christ. Have you confronted sin and death, and have you put your trust in the only one who can conquer those enemies for you? The genealogy, while showing us the meat grinder of the cycle of sin and death, also shows us that there's hope for the cycle to be disrupted. There's a signal that there's a way to escape the fate of all humankind. Humankind. Maybe you noticed it already if you've read ahead or if you've read this passage before, but there's actually two out of the ten names that show a disruption in the cycle of death. You'll see them as we read uh, a few generations down, starting in verse 21. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close relationship with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years, walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. Here, the cycle of he died, he died, he died, gets broken by Enoch. Instead of dying, we're told that Enoch disappeared. God took him. What that means, we're not 100% sure, but he disappeared. He was gone. God helped him avoid, the, the, um, avoid death, and he just took him to be in his presence. And the only information we're given as to why this happened is that Enoch walked with God. Later in verse 9, we get the same description of Noah, that Noah walked in close fellowship with God. And while Noah did die, we read in chapter 9, he was saved from the death of all humankind in the flood. And so Noah, by walking with God, was saved from the consequence of death. So there's this hint Not yet fully fleshed out in biblical history, but a hint as to how humanity can avoid the consequence of death brought on by sin. Walking with God turns us from a path that leads to destruction and starts us on a path that leads to life in the presence of God. God has the power to rescue us from death because he he is not under the power of death. He rules over death itself and can pull us out from its clutches by his strength. When Moses stood in front of the people, before they entered the promised land, many generations later, he told them the same thing in Deuteronomy 30. He says, now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commandments, decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. Jesus and the New Testament authors pick up this language in many places. Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is narrow, and the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it. Jesus says there's a path that leads to death, and there's a path that leads to life. Paul in Galatians 5 says, walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. In Ephesians 5, he says, walk in the way of love. Colossians 3, you used to walk in sin, but now you'd walk in a different way. In John, we read, walk in the light, not in darkness. It's often used as a metaphor for the Christian life itself. We talk about our walk with Jesus because we're on a journey with him. Our lives are in motion as we move forward on on the path Jesus places before us. There are paths and pressures and temptations that threaten to lead us astray, but we need to stay on the narrow path of life, walking with Jesus. And even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear, because Jesus, our shepherd, is with us. So Enoch walked with God, and God rescued him from the clutches of death. How's your walk with Jesus going? How is that journey going? Are you sticking close to his side? Or have you started to stray? Have you determined, like Adam and Eve, what is right in your own eyes and seen and taken what you think is good, instead of trusting in Jesus to lead you down the path of life, and to provide what he knows to be good for you. Friends, there is only one path to life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you walking with Jesus, or are you walking on your own? If you have strayed, Jesus always welcomes you back. If you are still breathing, that's his grace giving you the opportunity to come back to him. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him, that's Jesus, the sins of us all. He has made a way for us to come back and walk with him and be rescued from the consequences of sin. Let's read the last bit of chapter 5 as this genealogy introduces us to Noah. As Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. Lamech named his son Noah, for he said, May he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. After the birth of Noah, Lamech lived another 595 years. He had other sons and daughters. Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we'll get introduced to those guys next week. This genealogy in Genesis 5 actually extends to chapter 9, where we get um, the expected conclusion to Noah's life, where we're told when he dies. But what happens between you know beginning of chapter six and the end of chapter nine is we focus in specifically on Noah's life. He started walking with God, and that's how he was rescued from the impending danger, and then he ended actually not walking with God, and the consequences eventually took his life. But as we prepare ourselves for next week, as we look at the ark and the flood, uh, we're going to look at the shape of the world and what was happening in the world that led to God's decision to bring judgment through the flood. So we're in Genesis 6, 1 to 8 for the rest of our time this morning. Then the people began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. So this is the section of Scripture that I mentioned earlier that files itself into the category of the Bible can be weird sometimes. So let me try my best to maybe... uh, offer some thoughts that might help some curiosity, but also we sometimes need to redirect our questions to figure out what's most important in passages like this. So there's lots of controversy and debate over the identity of the individuals in this passage who are called the sons of God. Verse 2 says, "...the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives." And then we're told that when these sons of God had sex with these beautiful women, they produced a kind of offspring that were giants, and they were heroes, and they were great and mighty warriors in the land. And as you follow biblical history forward, the descendants of these Nephilites, or other translations call them Nephilim, uh, they become a constant problem. As the nation of Israel comes into Canaan, they see giants in the land and they're terrified of them. They, they battle against them constantly. They're always seen as adversaries of God's people. So there's something about this union of sons and God, sons of God and, and beautiful women called daughters of men in other translations that was not okay. And here's the hint. Maybe you saw it because I encourage you to look for these combinations of words. But as we read verse two again, I'll emphasize the words I'm talking about. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their, li- as their wives. Now, when we were first introduced to that language, it was when Eve saw that the fruit was good and desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took it and ate it. These are key words. They cue the ominous music. They cue, you know, the, the Darth Vader music. You know he's coming on scene, even if you haven't seen him yet. It's a cue for us to say we're about to read about sin. There's a new fall narrative happening. And it's a reminder as we see this repeating over time, especially in the book of Genesis, that humanity didn't just fall once, but generation after generation after generation has seen what was wise in our own eyes and taken God's blessing or what we perceive to be God's blessing by our own strength instead of receiving what God said is good and receiving his blessing with patience, and allowing him to give it to us when he sees fit. And so these sons of God saw and they took, leading to a fall narrative and terrible consequences. Now, for those who are curious, because I said there's lots of debate here, let me quickly share a couple of theories as to who these sons of God are. Number one, some people believe the sons of God are actually spiritual beings, potentially fallen angels. They've joined Satan in his rebellion, doing whatever they please And like the serpent, they're trying to steal the authority of human image bearers by any means necessary. So they take human wives and they bear these hybrid spirit human children called Nephilites who become a pain in the backside of God's people. And there's lots of reasons for this theory. One of the reasons is because the Hebrew wording translated sons of God, the only other two times it's used in the Old Testament is to refer specifically to spirit beings once in the book of Psalms, and once in Job. And so it's hard to imagine that being used for humans. Another theory is that these are actually godly men from Seth's lineage, but they're doing ungodly things, seeing and taking what they want. Maybe one application is to think these are godly Christian men who don't care about finding godly Christian women. They just go find someone that they think is beautiful and take them as their wives, not being patient for God's own provision and blessing in their lives. The third theory is that the sons of God is a term referring to kings, rulers, judges, men with power and authority, and they're using their power, like many do, to abuse women, to take, as, to take multiple wives, to, to, to take wives and women without their permission, without consent, and they're just abusing their power, leading to great consequences in the world. I've read many commentaries trying to figure out what all this means. And I read one commentary that says, oh, they're spirit beings, and most modern scholars believe that. And I read another one that says, oh, they're godly men in Seth's line, and most modern scholars believe that. And I read another one, oh, they're judges, and most modern scholars believe that. You all say that most modern scholars agree with you. So, but what's the big idea here? The main point stands regardless of the identity of these sons of God. Wickedness on the earth was spreading. The boundaries God put in place were being constantly crossed. The sons of God taking these women as wives is the culmination of a chain of events where God's boundaries have been overstepped over and over again. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Cain kills Abel. Lamech has multiple wives. No one said polygamy was okay Humans just saw and they took. And then he celebrated violence and the murder of a young boy. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't talking about the multiplication of sin, but that's what's happening. Sin is multiplying and spreading and corrupting everything. And then we get this sad summary statement in verse 5. That says the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. Everything was corrupted by sin. The last time we read about God looking and observing his creation was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and the author here is setting up a deliberate contrast for the reader. Because look, it says in Genesis 1.31, God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. So God's observation over his creation went from very good to everything is consistently and totally evil. This is a sad and devastating moment in human history. Every aspect of creation has been corrupted and malformed by death and sin. You know, this is one of the reasons why I don't accept the excuse, this is just the way I am. Or I was just born this way. I'm doing what feels natural to me, because what is natural to us has been corrupted and malformed by sin. Our nature has been corrupted in every way. Every part of this world has been skewed and marred by the disease of sin The way things are, the natural inclinations of our hearts, the natural desires of our bodies cannot be trusted to lead us to that which is good. We need a renewed heart and mind We need to be transformed by the Spirit of God. We need to live lives of repentance as followers of our King Jesus, using God's word as a guide and a lamp to our feet on the path of life. We need to walk daily with Jesus and only then can we be assured that what we're being led to is actually what is good. Verse six says, so the Lord was sorry that he ever made them And put them on the earth. It broke his heart. We often see sin or assume that sin is merely the breaking of God's laws, but actually it's the breaking of God's heart. God is deeply grieved by sin because he loves us. He loves his creation. He poured himself into creation to have relationship and communion with creatures who could be like him. And then everything was twisted and tainted become something that was not intended. The language here isn't meant to indicate that God believes he made a mistake, but it's merely emphasizing how much pain and grief God is experiencing at the at the fate of humanity. And it's this state of humanity, this grief that fills God's heart that leads him to make the decision to decreate. He reverses his creation. The beginning uh, of Genesis starts saying the world was formless and void, and it was covered in waters. But then God separated the waters and land came through. But now in the flood narrative, we'll see a decreation where the land is now covered in waters again, and it's emptied and unformed as God begins creation over again. We're meant to read this having our hearts broken alongside of God, to grieve the effect of sin in our own lives and in the world around us. It's corruptive and destructive power to take that which is good and pervert it into something that is evil. And so let me say just two things to close. Number one, sin is the root of every problem. We like to justify our actions, to downplay our responsibilities, to blame others, but we must look at ourselves and recognize that we are all agents of sin, participating in the breakdown of God's good world. Not all of your problems are because of your own sin. Some are because other people have sinned against you, and some are just a reflection of the brokenness of the world because of the general impact of sin on the created created order. And some of our brokenness is the direct result of the sin of Satan and those who join in his rebellion, spiritual beings in this world that fight against God's purposes. He distorts and does damage. But ultimately, the sickness that is obvious in the world, we must recognize is a result of sin and we are all participants. It's not because of the other political party. It's not because of those people over there. It's not just because of corrupt systems that are in place. Any system that is corrupt and oppressive is because of sin. Sin is right here. It's within us. It's crouching at our door as God warned Cain. Sin is the root problem. It has affected every aspect of creation and every aspect of your life. And it grieves God's heart. Yet sin has a solution. God put into motion a solution from the very beginning that a seed of Eve would come to crush the head of the serpent and be a redeemer for us, that he on the cross would take away our sin. He who knew no sin would become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. There is a solution through Jesus so that now we can be made holy And pure again. And God can look upon his creatures, and instead of saying everything about them has become evil, he can once again say, very good. Very good. And number two, there is a way to escape the cycle of death, and that's to walk with Jesus. Before Christians were called Christians, they had a different nickname. They were called followers of the way. Because Jesus announced one of his own titles for himself. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is declaring there is a way, there is a path, and it's him. It's not a set of religious rules or rituals, though Jesus does give us spiritual rhythms that help us stay connected to him like a branch does to a vine. But he says, I am the way. Walk with me and you will find life. Christians took that seriously. They didn't decide what was right in their own eyes. They didn't pick and choose which of Jesus' teachings to follow. They just followed him. Because we can't trust the natural inclinations of our sinful hearts. Instead, we must trust Jesus and do what he says, even when it's hard. Why? Because it leads to life. It leads to what we're all looking for the whole time we're on this mud ball we call earth. Life. Life. The highway to hell, he says, is broad, but the path to life is narrow. We must walk with Jesus. So what sin do you need to repent of today that is leading you astray onto a different path that's only going to lead you to destruction? We must walk with Jesus. What would it look like today for you to start walking more closely with Jesus than you were yesterday? see the names in the genealogy of genesis 5 and 6 some of them are only mentioned here in the entire bible and you can come back up as we move toward a close some of them are only mentioned here they give a name they give their age some sons and daughters and then they're gone a lot of people they live they have a life It may or may not impact people around them. They may or may not be remembered for a couple of years or a couple of decades or maybe a couple hundred. But eventually their name goes onto the list of those who lived and they died. And we will join that list. But will the description of your life and my life merely end with he died or she died? Or will it also include that statement? he walked with God or she walked with God and is now more alive than they ever were before. It starts by acknowledging the name that is above every other name. The name that ultimately would be at the end of this list, which I think says something like this, and everyone who calls upon his name will be saved from the disaster that comes as a result of sin. We must repent of the sin that corrupts and destroys everything and walk with He who has the name above every name because only He can save us and lead us to life. Bow your heads with me. Prayer team, please come and prepare yourselves. Passages like this always require response when we read them or when we preach them in church. And I'm not going to manipulate that response or tell you exactly what it's going to look like for you specifically, other than to encourage you and challenge you in this moment. We must respond. No one here can claim to be without sin. John tells us that anyone who claims To never sin is a liar, the truth is not in them, and they they make God out to be a liar. All of us have participated. All of us have sinned to repent of. So I want you to spend just these moments with your head bowed and your eyes closed, and I'm gonna pray over you, and I'm joining you because I'm I'm right there with you. But just to ask the Lord to reveal in your own heart what it is that's leading you astray right now, what it is that's trying to take you onto a path. The the wide highway to hell, as Jesus calls it. And what needs to be done in order to straighten that out and to start walking with Jesus again? If after we pray you feel like you need to respond further, our prayer team is here to minister to you, talk to you, to encourage you, to pray with you. Or if you just have another need that you brought in today, feel free to come. We're going to respond to God in this time in prayer. And in worship, and we're going to sing that song again. What a beautiful name, the name that is above every name, because everyone who calls on that name will be saved. So, Father in heaven, we bow our heads before you today in humility, in recognition that we join a long list of humans originally made in your good image who have both as victims and as perpetrators, participated in the disintegration and destruction of your good world. We have rebelled against you. We have sinned. We have broken covenant. And Lord, more than that, we have broken your heart. So Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And each person here comes with the specific struggles they have and specific things, Lord God, they need to repent of. And so God, in this moment, I pray, that by the blood of Jesus, you would pour out your forgiveness on each life and bring cleansing and holiness and assurance, Lord, that in your eyes they have now purity and holiness and you look upon them as you look on Jesus and you say, very good. And help us, Lord, from this day forward as we have gone astray and walked our own path, help us, Lord Jesus, to walk with you daily, to trust in you daily to not be distracted or tempted to walk away, but to stick close to you as you stick close to us. And even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to be afraid because the one who conquered death is with us. We declare all these truths in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing. If you wanna come up for prayer, please don't hesitate. Our prayer team is ready for you.